We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome to Live Players, where political scientists and strategists Sam Oberia and I discuss the key individuals with the power to alter our current society. Every week, we provide analysis of the news and case studies of live players, as well as key institutions and technologies that make up the global power landscape. Let's dive in. Hey, Samo. Hey, Eric. How are you doing? Pretty good. I'm looking forward to our second episode. Yes, let's get right into it. I thought this week we would talk about energy. Um, we briefly touched on it in our last episode, and maybe we could do a deep dive uh, in this one, particularly around, uh, around nuclear. How, how does that sound? Okay, that sounds great. Well, first, let's let's briefly touch on kind of the higher level. Um, what do people not fully appreciate about how energy uh, impacts geopolitics or sort of the role of, of energy or what misconceptions do people have? You, you mentioned yourself that there were one of the ways in which you changed your mind over the past few years was, was in this space. You've written a number of pieces, which we'll get into in Bismarck Brief, about how different countries have um, strengthened their, you know, treated their nuclear um, development. Um, why don't you give a brief overview to kind of set the context for people who don't really know much about how energy impacts um, geopolitics, et cetera? This is certainly a topic that has had numerous books devoted to it and innumerable policy papers. But if we zoom out to you know the largest picture of history, starting with the Industrial Revolution, with the uh, advent of coal, we became a fossil fuel-powered civilization. Before this, the most useful resource was manpower and sometimes, you know, animal and water power. And these energy sources, you know, while they're unevenly distributed around the world, it was basically just a function of arable land, right? The more arable land you had, the more population you had, the more donkeys, horses, cows, whatever you had, the more productive you were. This introduces the first geopolitical factor, which was easily accessible coal reserves. If you look at a map of World War I Europe, so this is about 100 years later after the start of the Industrial Revolution, you realize that they're basically fighting over the easily accessible coal fields of Europe. You can almost track area after area. And that's not a coincidence. Those were the areas that industrialized. In other words, Coal is extremely regional as an energy source. It's like a particular province. It's like not all of Western Europe. It's like it's Belgium, right? Or it's not all of Britain. It's, uh, you know, maybe the North and so on and so on. It's not a very easy to transport source of, uh, you know, source of energy. It's basically a black rock that we burn. And actually we burn it to this day. Coal for now remains the cheapest source of energy. We now convert it, of course, to, to electricity. The second stage, historically, is oil. Oil is much more useful for mobile vehicles, hence its importance during World War II. During World War II, uh, you know, an oil shortage could cripple war fighting. This wouldn't have been the case during the First World War. 
Uh, this means, again, if you look at the map of World War II, uh, you can see that at least some major decisions are made with oil fields in mind, such as denying the oil fields of Romania uh, to the Germans, denying sources of oil to the Japanese. There was the oil embargo before World War II even got started. Oil is a globalized source of energy. It's not a black stone. It's not a black rock that we burn. It's a liquid. You can transport a liquid very easily through oil pipelines and through tankers. Uh, ships to this day are the cheapest way we have to ship, uh, you know, uh, quantities, large quantities of goods. And if you basically just pump a ship full of this black liquid, you can sail it anywhere around the world. Were it not for geopolitics, I think, you know, oil would be a real globalized market. Coal, not so much. You still have to, you know, it's still kind of expensive to fill a ship with coal and sail it to the other part of the world. People kind of do it now in a hyper-globalized world, but you still have an energy advantage to this day if you're burning coal right next to where you're mining it. It's just better physics. Um, but oil is not evenly distributed around the world. And this leads us to the sort of post-World War II era, uh, the era of, you know, the Russians, the Soviet Union, perhaps not being super economically efficient, but pumping out, uh, you know, a lot of fossil fuels, as they still do to this day, as the Russian Federation. Um, one of the results of this was that the U.S. cultivated other allies around the world that had cheap and easily accessible oil. So a small desert country or a large desert country suddenly has global impact because everyone's consuming their oil, driving their cars, uh, producing various plastics. Um, the whole industrial economy of the Cold War, uh, you know, runs on oil. And when the oil stopped flowing, the engine sputters, which happened in the 1970s with the oil shocks. Uh, so, you know, countries such as Saudi Arabia, but also countries such as formerly Persia, now Iran, after the Islamic Revolution, had immense leverage. The most recent energy revolution related to the fossil fuel stack, which I'm describing because to talk about nuclear, we have to talk about the alternative stack, right? And our current stack is a fossil fuel stack, um, was the fracking revolution. The key thing that changed here is, while the U.S. was always a producer of oil, right? In fact, Texas, Texas was one of the first places where, you know, oil exploitation really took off. Uh, there were Texas oilmen traveling the Soviet Union, actually, in the 1920s and 30s, seeking business opportunities to set up Soviet oil production. Yes, the Soviets contracted with U.S. experts to set up their oil industry. And if you look at Saudi Arabia, of course, Saudi Aramco used to be the Arab American oil uh, company. Uh, it is since, you know, mostly uh, it is since owned by the Saudis. However, we, you know, if you work in this industry, you know so many Americans who to this day live and work in Saudi Arabia in these basically company towns and are still attached to the oil sector. It's, it's incredible, right? Decades upon decades and this, uh, this tradition of knowledge is uh, still tied to the U.S. and the U.S. sector. Um, and fracking is the key technology here that changes global energy geopolitics in the early 2000s, just as the war on terror is taking off, just as the Middle East 
appears to be perpetually the destiny of the United States to be trapped in quagmire after quagmire there, um, you know, fracking changes the situation because it's only legal in the United States. Britain could frack, actually. Britain could become energy independent. They just basically don't want it. There's some real environmentalist concerns, but I think this is just nimbyism, right? Not in my backyard. No one really wants an oil well, let alone fracking near where they live. So in a funny way, this leads me to the last sort of uh, thought on global energy geopolitics. Fracking deconstrains uh, at least access to light oil. You still have to mix it with heavier oil to get you know efficient refining and so on. However, low population density countries have an advantage when it comes to mining. Think of what the top resource exporters when it comes to minerals and fossil fuels and all of this are. What kind of countries are these? Um, well, it's Russia, it's Australia, it's Canada, it's uh, you know slowly maybe Brazil, though Brazil is more agricultural. Uh, it's, you know, Saudi Arabia, it's the United States. Half of the United States is basically desert and mountains. There are resources beneath the surface of the earth, huge, huge, huge amounts of these resources. We continue to discover them and access them with new technology. But as soon as an area is densely inhabited and populated, almost no matter what your political system is, uh, there is local concentrated opposition to mining operations. The only exception is when the town only exists because of mining. Then the locals are in favor of keeping the mine going. But if there's already a town there, there will be strong local opposition to opening a mine or pumping oil or doing anything else. So this means large uh, countries, because they have more land area, will probabilistically in the future discover more resources of all kinds, including stuff like, you know, I don't know, we could talk about rare earth metals, but they're not even that rare anymore and they never were, um, and low population densities help you uh, not have local opposition, right? People in Moscow, totally fine with drilling and digging in Siberia. You know, people in most parts of the U.S., but not all, totally okay with North Dakota, uh, South Dakota, and all of that being fracked up. Like, that's okay. Um, so let's talk now about nuclear. Nuclear enters the story in 1945 with the dropping, you know, actually with the Trinity test, the first atomic explosion, there was a physics possibility of exploiting uh, nuclear reactions for energy that scientists and science fiction authors had actually written about in the 1930s. Uh, I really recommend people read, um, you know, various 1930s science fiction uh, books. There's a particular Swedish science fiction author, Olaf uh, Stapledon, um, you know, he died in 1950. So, you know, this is a very interesting example of basically a 19th century man writing about, you know, Kardashev scale civilizations, basically. Uh, very much, very much recommend uh, his, uh, his uh, work and his thoughts. But still, he wasn't unique. So there were people foreseeing an energy transition from chemistry based energy, which basically includes fossil fuels as such to, you know, basically atomic scale reactions to physics-based uh, energy. The nuclear, you know, the, the bomb basically scared everyone. At first, it was just like, wow, the industrialized war of World War II, 
there's going to be a repeat. There's going to be another terrible industrialized war with thousands of planes flying. And uh, we're going to be annihilating whole cities, just as you know, was done with uh, Tokyo fire bombings or Dresden or the way, you know, Leningrad and Stalingrad got completely destroyed by the by, uh, you know, the fighting between the Red Army and the German forces. Um, and it dawned slowly as you go into the 1960s that, wait, actually, the rockets are so good, we don't need planes anymore. Not for delivering nukes. Wait, the nukes can fly anywhere in the world in like an, under an hour. Wait, you can wire them all up together. And then this sheer like almost existential terror comes into view where we've created a massive doomsday machine, a doomsday machine with thousands of pieces, right? All of them can go wrong with humans in the loop, but in theory, in the popular imagination enters the president with the power to press a button and end the world. Now you might ask which president it's like, that's obvious. It's the U S president. So to this day, I think in the national American mythology, the nuclear football is this almost supernatural power that the U is bestowed upon the U S president as if you might bestow the crown jewels or like a papal charisma. And, uh, you know, the Soviet premier had a little bit of this, but never had PR. He was sort of the, the, the Manichaean evil counterpart to the U S president. Now, of course, if the U S president was evil, then, you know, the, the theology all breaks. Uh, and this also made it so much more important to pick the president. Um, and why is this, again, why is this like still so important to emphasize? Because I think the most fundamental barrier to the adoption of nuclear energy actually remains proliferation. We could have orders of magnitude more energy consumption with scaling nuclear reactors. Building a single machine in an industrial civilization is always extremely expensive. Building a thousand is much cheaper. Any capital expenditure you have for specialized tools, like for example, if you want to make like a giant, uh, a giant steel dome for a nuclear reactor, right? You build one, that's a really expensive steel dome. You build a thousand, okay, the cost per unit is probably like under a third, under a quarter, maybe even under 10%, depending on the details of how you're doing that steel. Um, construction and how you're shipping it to where the reactor ultimately stands. Every single part of a complicated machine like a nuclear reactor is a product of industrial society and industrial societies are societies of scale. If we were to provide all the energy that we use for fossil fuels, it would be at most a thousand or so large nuclear reactors. And that's like not that many products, right? That's not that many units. For us to really reap the benefits of the economies of scale of nuclear energy, we would need tens of thousands of reactors. Ah, but here we hit onto the real problem. I think nuclear reactors do subsidize and facilitate the transfer of the kind of technical expertise that are needed to make an atomic bomb. It is a quirk of physics, but I think a real one that honestly, if you have the enriched material like uranium or plutonium, you know, it's like actually not that hard to make a bomb. Look, North Korea can do it for real. Let's think about this. North Korea 
can build a bomb. North Korea is a super isolated country, right? It's a super sanctioned country. It's not particularly resource-rich country. So then if the default way to have energy is universal, cheap and abundant nuclear reactors, I think the great powers of the world have the problem that suddenly the small countries are on an equal footing. I reject the premise, perhaps controversially, that nuclear proliferation increases the odds of Armageddon. I actually think that, you know, if Estonia or Slovenia, or for that matter, even South Korea, have, you know, a dozen nuclear warheads, I think they would basically just use them for, in self-defense. And yes, a dozen nuclear warheads is enough to prevent even a major country uh, like the United States or China from invading you. Uh, but, you know, maybe that's a good thing. However, the great powers of the world, in fact, do want to limit nuclear proliferation. I just feel like at this point, it's better to think of it in terms of like arms control between the countries that have the truly huge stockpiles that could end the world rather than trying to put the genie back into the bottle. And it's been 80 years, right? This is technology from 1945. Uh, uranium is, you know, it's tricky. It's like not every country has uranium, but it's not that hard to source it. Like say Kazakhstan exports uranium, Australia exports uranium. And as I outlined earlier, what I was saying implicitly about the still significant abundance of fossil fuels, that's even more true of uranium. I think you can take almost any piece of like land around the world. And if you dug deep enough, eventually you run into all sorts of metals, including uranium. Now, our technology is not yet advanced enough to go, you know, drill boreholes into the Earth's crust and mantle, but eventually it will be, right? So eventually, assuming technological progress, uranium is widely accessible, it's easy to enrich, it's easy to build. So I, I think we have to grapple with a security architecture where basically every sovereign country either has nuclear weapons or has the ability to get them. And until we sort of are at that point, we're in this weird transition phase where nuclear exports are super controlled. Like I said, the only way to make nuclear energy affordable is to vastly scale how many reactors of a certain type you build and to vastly scale that, right? To vastly scale that um, if you're a small country, again, like South Korea, if you wanna build 12 nuclear reactors instead of 12, 12 warheads, uh, that's a pricey undertaking for South Korea. But were South Korea to succeed in exporting 50 or 100 reactors, ah, then a national nuclear industry and building those reactors is affordable. For South Korea to export those, they have to deal with the United States, where the U.S. is perhaps going to be quite sensibly, you know, you can't export to Iran. And there's good reasons not to export to Iran, like at least now when we're in the area where proliferation has not completed. I sketched out earlier why I think proliferation is inevitable on the long run, but right now it's not yet completed. So enabling this or that country to go through what I call the nuclear transition, uh, because I do think it's inevitable assuming technical civilization continues, uh, you know, you might choose to slow this or that country down. But, um, you know, even say a country like Russia, that's perhaps at some times happy 
to export nuclear technology to Eastern Europe might think twice if, say, Poland was to start building a nuclear reactor as to whether they want to export even more tech there, right? Because, uh, you know, they have this, this deep geopolitical conflict. So the large countries do want to prevent the small countries and the weaker powers, the middle powers, the, the great powers want to prevent the middle powers from, uh, you know, basically exporting nuclear reactors. Uh, occasionally, a country like France kind of ignores the U.S., right, uh, and just exports anyway, even though it's an ally. Uh, the great countries have a fundamental problem of over-regulation and bureaucratization. So China might as well be a planet. It's 1.3 billion people, vast geography, half of it is desert or mountain. The U.S., again, might as well be a planet. 300 million people doesn't quite sound like a planet, but it basically is a planet's worth of people if we were you know, living in 1800, right? Um, and its population is still growing due to immigration and demographic momentum. I think the U.S., China, and possibly if they got their act together, the European Union have a large enough internal market that if they could have uh, a thriving nuclear industry building a few hundred nuclear reactors, I think this would result in an energy mix of about 30% or so electricity powered by nuclear. But to get to the real energy revolution, uh, to get to the energy revolution of 100% nuclear or 90% or 80% nuclear, uh, I think for that you would have to build not hundreds of reactors, but thousands or tens of thousands. And there we start hitting onto problems of scale. We are fundamentally still an unserious civilization burning uh, you know, black rocks and black liquid for our energy. Our energy needs are kind of trivial. We drive around a little bit. We like, uh, you know, melt metals. Uh, and, you know, I'm almost running out of what else is expensive, really. Like we, move, we drive around vehicles to do work. Uh, we have factories that have like automated machinery and we melt metals. Kind of, you know, our needs aren't that high. We would need to spend an order of magnitude more energy or two orders of magnitude more energy. And if we did that, then I think nuclear at scale would be vastly cheaper than coal. So when they promised us energy too cheap to meter in the 1950s, they were imagining both the world, they were imagining a world of two things. They were imagining a world where the, lar the long-term historical trend of energy consumption that was exponential at the time would continue and that we would be spending five or 10 times more energy than we are today. And number two, they, you know, they thought that uh, the proliferation would either be solved or we would all go extinct. Uh, proliferation is not solved. The nuclear world order is not yet developed. Uh, but, you know, we're not dead, fortunately. And there's not been a civilization wrecking nuclear war. And, you know, we can be grateful for that. And I think we should continue being very careful with the international politics but I do think that there's a kind of moment where, where, where this overgrown kid is still living in their mom's basement. We should be spending, we should be a nuclear civilization by now. We chose not to be because we don't have an ambition big enough to need nuclear. That's well, well, well articulated. I, I've been thinking about this very deeply for a very long time, as you can yeah. tell. I've written like 10 briefs on it. <laughs> yeah. I read, it totally. I read all you, of it. You nerd sniped me with your first question this episode. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. 
Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. So are you, are you basically making an accelerationist argument that, hey, this, this is inevitable, uh, and so we should um, accelerate it because it's going to happen and because there are some good things um, that, that come with it? And yeah, there are some risks that come with it, but it is inevitable and thus we should do it sooner. Do you see yourself making an accelerationist argument? And, and what do you say to someone who says, is it inevitable? Why are you so, have so much conviction that it's inevitable? Okay. Um, you know, that's a very good question. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel someone joked recently on Twitter that in San Francisco, uh, uh, you know, uh, software engineers are now inventing new accelerationisms the same way they used to once invent new genders. Uh, you know, everyone has their variant of ACK, <laughs> in their Twitter handle, EAC, Lambda-AC, UAC, whatever. So I'm happy to coin uh, nuclear acceleration and AC. Uh, you know, it's like atom punk, whatever you want to call it. It's like, sure, you know, I'm not saying our hair won't get singed 20 to 30 million dead tops. But, you know, after a small nuclear war here or there, we'll have abundant energy for all. <laughs> no, I... And you, you don't want to be flippant about it, right? War is like absolutely terrible, but like actually imagine if we stopped the development of dynamite to prevent World War One. Like, you know, it doesn't actually quite make sense. Um, the argument used by like physicists in the 30s and 40s, because some of them were also, you know, kind of Marxist and all of them were idealists, right? Um, uh, was that a nuclear scale civilization has to be a world civilization. But you know, I could see some forces in nuclear actually going the other way. In a way, you know, maybe nuclear weapons are the second amendment of the international community. Maybe every sovereign country should have some nukes. If every sovereign country has some nukes, well, maybe this makes conventional war kind of expensive, kind of risky. But since it's just a small country and only has a few nukes, the occasional war that happens doesn't end the world. And the automated systems of the great doomsday machines of the former Soviet Union and the United States that were honestly wired to, in case there's a nuclear strike, the default war plan called for nuking sometimes even totally unrelated opponents. Say, the U.S. had, if it is in a nuclear war with Russia, also nuke China. Like, that was just an official war plan. Which kind of makes grim geopolitical sense, because if the Russia and the U.S. nuke each other, like, who wins? China. If China and Russia nuke each other, who wins? Well, America. So, okay, the Russians were also like, if we get into a nuclear war with China, nuke America also. But I think that only really happens if the big powers have their vast nuclear arsenals and no one else has them. 
I don't think nuclear weapons are good, but I think uh, eventually after a turbulent period, yes, all the small countries will be capable of building nuclear weapons within a year. Japan is capable of building nuclear weapons in less than a year. They stockpile many tons of plutonium. This, by the way, is with the approval of the United States. So that's an interesting case where the U.S. doesn't want a nuclear-armed Japan, but the U.S. actually um, chastised the Japanese government when in the aftermath of the Fukushima uh, accident, they closed down their nuclear reactors, and the future of this plutonium that's stockpiled for research purposes, right, civilian energy research purposes, there's no use for it other than nuclear weapons. There's like a hypothetical reactor system they were going to build that they never built, but they're still stockpiling tons of the stuff, literal tons. Um, the U.S. was concerned that Japan would stop having a stockpile of plutonium. Like, think about that. They couldn't quite say it. Let's remember, Japan has a pacifist constitution. One of the largest navies in the world is just a you know self-defense force, a glorified Coast Guard. Their military is also a self-defense force. It's not an army. Their air force is a self-defense, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, the constitution has a line that it's illegal to call or declare war as Japan, you know, aggressively. So the U.S. Uh, understands that Japan has all the parts in front of it to build a nuclear arsenal within a year if the geopolitics changes. It has the Japanese Space Agency, which means that they have ICBMs. They can build rockets. They have the know-how. They actually build very, very good rockets. Like they basically were the main partner for the UAE Mars mission. So Japan has like space technology to the point of being able to, to take payloads all the way to Mars. They certainly have what it takes to bring a payload to Beijing um, and, you know, or Pyongyang for that matter. And they also have this large stockpile of plutonium. And in recent years, they've revived their nuclear industry. Um, they also just need it for energy. Japan is a very densely populated country. So they have been dependent on fossil fuel imports. Nuclear alleviates this. Uh, they buy a lot of uh, liquefied natural gas. You know, gas is interesting. It's sort of, I would say, geopolitically between coal, which is super local, regional, and oil, which is global. Uh, I think it's like a continental scale resource. Gas is hard to liquefy. It's expensive to liquefy and put on a boat but it's not expensive to put into a pipeline. So gas pipelines are the reason why, say, Russia's energy policy matters so much more for Europe than it does for America. But say Russia's oil, oil policy, oil exports, whatever, impact Europe and America about the same. So that's the difference between, you know, natural gas and oil, roughly speaking, simplifying. Uh, and to go, to go just a step back, Japan has to buy the you know liquefied natural gas. It has to buy all of these other things. Nuclear reactors are something where they can lean into their domestic advantage of highly advanced industry, highly trained technical talent to provide them with relatively reliable energy. Um, I'll return to Japan a little bit later to talk about Fukushima, but uh, nuclear accelerationism would suggest that there's not a problem with Japan having nuclear weapons one year away. If it's a peaceful neighborhood, 
the weapons aren't assembled. There's no risk of a nuclear accident, no risk of a Dr. Strangelove scenario where a crazed military officer, perhaps wanting to restore the glory of the emperor unilaterally, uh, you know, decides to nuke China to initiate national rebirth of Japan. You, you think I'm kidding, but there are people who like will think like this. This is not, you know, this is that there are even fringe uh, Shinto uh, worshipping hardline elements in the Japanese government to this day. Uh, you know, Japanese ultranationalism is a fun Wikipedia rabbit hole if you ever want to go down into it. Um, and it also minimizes the odds of technical error, right, of accidental launch or accidental detonation. Um, have you ever heard of uh, uh, what, a, what the U.S. Air Force refers to as broken arrow? No, I've never heard of it. Okay. Um, a broken arrow is uh, a nuclear weapon accident. It's defined as an unexpected event involving nuclear weapons that results in the accidental launching, firing, detonation, theft, or loss of the weapon. Uh, the U.S. has actually lost several nukes. <laughs> there are, there are uh, 32 known broken arrow incidents that have been, you know, uh, that have been um, documented. And like to this day, I think that there's a there's a plane crash where two nukes just got lost somewhere. I think it's somewhere in Pennsylvania or something like this. So to this day, you know, a lucky treasure hunter might find a nuke somewhere where the U.S. military failed to. Um, but joking, joking aside, technical problems and then politically disloyal elements starting a war, even when it's not in the national interest. And then, of course, you have the, you know, in the Cold War, in the Cold War era, people more thought about like a rogue military element, and in the two thousands, they more thought about like the terrorism scenario where there's just theft, and the terrorists were to use a nuclear weapon. Right, that was kind of the fear factor behind a lot of the stuff that happened post nine eleven, all the way until like the early twenty tens, because the assumption was, hey, maybe they're going to try to get a nuke from a rogue regime like Libya or Iraq or even North Korea. And then we're really screwed. So those two are alleviated by having a nuclear-ready country. A correct analog to this, I think, would be, imagine that it's legal to have a disassembled gun in your home. Like, imagine a country where you had, like, actually, like, you know, most people don't own guns, but it's legal to have a disassembled gun. This is not a protection against immediate home invasion, but it is a protection of sorts, right? It is a protection for all sorts of contingencies, uh, like, you know, a civil war or government tyranny, or maybe you decide, hey, my neighborhood is becoming much more unsafe. I don't care that it's illegal and you just assemble it and then you have it. So it's potentially there, even if it's not officially there. Um, by the way, that's basically Israel's situation. Israel is officially neither confirms nor denies to having nuclear weapons. And because it neither confirms nor denies, the U.S. mostly doesn't give it a hard time, even though it's in violation of uh, various non-proliferation guidelines. Again, for U.S. interests in particular, it's kind of fine that Israel has nuclear weapons, but it's kind of not fine that they acknowledge that they have nuclear weapons. Uh, again, the politics of the Middle East could be described in a whole separate episode as we're, um, you know, unfortunately learning with, with recent events. The, um, 
the world where all countries have this plutonium stockpile is actually, I think, a world where countries saying, hey, I'm going to assemble my nukes is a pretty serious signal that there's tension and that there's a risk of war. I think war will still happen. And I think, unfortunately, in this world, nuclear weapons will be used, say, in the recent Armenian versus Azerbaijan conflict. These are two tiny countries, right? I, you know, in a nuclear world, I think they would have it. Um, they would they would have a bomb. They, they probably wouldn't use them because they're so small. Uh, but the nuclear weapon means that you're punching each other out. And then one of them is like, back off or I'm pulling out a knife. I think there would be a lot of negotiated peace as well. They wouldn't just be crazed off small countries nuking each other over petty wars. I think they'd be a lot of, okay, okay, we fight a war. We lost 5% of our territory. You get these concessions, but no further. And then the other, bro, the other person's like, okay, okay, just kidding, bro. Okay, okay, right? Because, uh, again, a small country maybe has one big city. Um, and, you know, you, you can't take that much of a, that much of a beating until you just cease to exist. So why do I think it's inevitable though? That's a good question. And I think it's just the technology is the worst it will ever be. And we're nowhere near the physical limits uh, of it. Yeah. But with that same thinking or the same argument for nuclear accelerationism also make you an accelerationist across the board? No. <laughs> What would not make you an accelerationist when it comes to AI or something else? Like, what's an argument that would work there, but that wouldn't also apply for, for nuclear? Like, where is the difference? Well, okay, first off, let me say I am opposed to the expansion of the U.S., Russian, or Chinese nuclear arsenal. So the number of nuclear warheads. I'm not opposed to Poland having five tons of plutonium that they stockpile just in case NATO dissolves and they decide that they need nuclear weapons to defend themselves against Russia, right? I'm not even opposed to Belarusia having a stockpile of plutonium. They probably do, honestly. I would have to look into it uh, in case, you know, Russia becomes a democracy and they truly become uh, the North Korea of Europe, right? The Belarusian regime under Lukashenko. Um, I would say that the U.S. is already paying the full price of building a vast nuclear arsenal, it might as well reap the benefits from building cheap and abundant nuclear energy. Like we're, we already have thousands of nukes, nothing you or I could do will ever convince the US government to not have thousands of nukes. But maybe we can have lots of cheap nuclear energy here. Um, so it's sort of, you know, in the ideal world, I think we wouldn't have nuclear weapons. Maybe we wouldn't have weapons at all. And we certainly, in an achievable world, would not have this idea that the point of nuclear weapons is to stockpile for a doomsday machine. It would just be a high energy explosive to be used proportionally. And you know, as bizarre as this sounds, US strategists following game theory, you know, they, they were so, they were so um, entranced by the beautiful mathematics of game theory. Um, they thought they could quantify all of these interesting risks. You know, even uh, some of the scientists were so confident that are like, you know, even aliens will use game theory to think about things like mutually assured destruction. Yet we now know from Russian documents in the 1960s 
they didn't use game theory at all. As late as 1960, they were using normal military doctrine for the development of their nuclear weapons program. So you think you're going to meet aliens and there's going to be this mutual assured destruction argument that you're going to take out your like math and like calculate the odds. Look, if the Russians don't think that way, why would people, why would people from another star system, why would an AI? I, I think there's this hubris that we want to have these like very simple quantifiable games. And there's something about game theory where it's really good and easy to model, like zero sum and negative sum stuff, but the positive sum stuff is harder to model. So if you're using these tools, they almost distort you kind of to think in the, the more zero sum world, right? Where one side's loss is another side's win and vice versa. And in that world, you know, you know, if you, uh, if there are 5 million Russians after the war, but 50 million Americans, then America won, right? That's, that's in the zero sum logic. Um, you know, it's not quite the true logic of life. Uh, and it's not even the true logic of most war, I would say. So this is perhaps an interesting disagreement one could have or dig into the work of a uh, Klaushevitz or trace some of these later Western military thinkers and contrast them with say Sun Tzu. Uh, you know, since you proposed that the best form of war fighting is to not fight a war at all. How, how would Russia, Ukraine or Israel, Palestine be different if, if your world had come to come to pass earlier? You know, that's a very good question. I think the development of Israel, Palestine would have been completely different. Uh, it, the complicated history there. I will note that it's such a small strip of land there's no way for even Israel to use a nuclear weapon against Gaza. Gaza, I could see some super extremist government in like Hamas using a nuclear weapon against Israel and not caring if there are parts of uh, Gaza that are damaged. However, in that world, the Israeli government would have already, it would have, you know, and maybe this is like not a great outcome, uh, depending on who you ask. For other people, it's a great outcome. I think the government would have been like, okay, this is an unacceptable risk. It's kind of terrible. We don't, you know, it's expensive, it's dangerous, but I think we just have to govern Gaza. Because if we don't govern Gaza, uh, we can't secure the one nuclear reactor that Gaza has. And if we can't secure the one nuclear reactor Gaza has, or the two, or how many, any power, the city, you know, we, it might be appropriate, it might be uh, used for nuclear weapon. So I think basically, in that situation, like Israel's still in a bad position, but it would have deployed its other conventional means to prevent an extremist group uh, from controlling territory or controlling facilities that are nuclear facilities. So in a way, the US does this on a global scale today, right? sometimes truthfully and sometimes it lies, right? It lied about there being weapons of mass destruction in Iraq uh, in 2004. Uh, but, you know, in principle, you know, it was like, okay, we have to bomb uh, this or that facility, right? I do think the more you push it towards atom punk, the harder it gets to control. Uh, but I think that since it's such a blunt weapon, it's very, e it's very difficult to have like small nuclear explosives. I think the activation cost to using it is pretty high. And this actually means that it's going to be used very infrequently. If you judge nuclear weapons 
not as a world-ending terror or status symbol, but merely as a tool in war fighting, it's actually a kind of shitty tool. It would actually be very hard for Russia to use nuclear weapons in a way that moves the Russia-Ukraine front. Like, it requires immense concentration of military force, right? Like, you would need to have, like, lots of tanks and vehicles or lots of personnel, and then you drop maybe a five-kiloton weapon, like, on the smaller end, right? Um, the We, to this day, again, having talked about dynamite, to this day, we tend to measure the explosive power of nuclear weapons in thousands kilo tons or megatons, so millions of tons of TNT. So if you pile up a million tons of TNT and you blow it up, that's one megaton uh, explosion. And that's like, say, that's like, you know, a solid sized nuclear weapon. Um, but what would this do? Like if we lived in the world where like, you know, Russia and Ukraine were dropping tactical nuclear weapons, right? I think in that world, you would see much more dispersal of equipment. First off, I think artillery becomes less useful. What is artillery? You bring a bunch of cannons somewhere and you concentrate fire onto a particular part of the battlefield. And your artillery usually has to be pretty close together to get like a solid amount of shelling going um, with nuclear artillery, basically. Um, you know, by the way, there, the US military was developing this sort of tactical weapon stuff in the 60s and so on. Uh, you know, there's like a nuclear cannon. If you want, you can go on YouTube and Google uh, US, U.S. military nuclear cannon. And you see this real thing of like a gun shooting. And then like you wait, you wait, you wait. And then poof, a nuclear explosion there. Like a cannon's not the right delivery vehicle for an atomic bomb. But they sure did try. They sure did try to, to fit it into their military technology of the time. Um, and I think the result is much greater dispersal of forces. I think if the Russians unilaterally started the war by just genociding the Ukrainians, by not destroying their military, but their population, there would be such an outcry around the world and everyone would basically consider them not just dangerous, but like absolutely mad dogs, basically. I think Russia would have an extremely bad time and I could even see the United States issuing an ultimatum, right? So... Note, though, that I think is not a fact about the nuclear weapons themselves. I think this is more a fact about if you went ahead and did something extreme with them. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, just probabilistically, I don't think, unfortunately, we can avoid it, that the first time a nuclear weapon is used is in a small war. And this causes us, you know, in the gravity of that terrible event when it happens, when perhaps a city is destroyed, or maybe if we're a bit luckier, like, you know, uh, I don't know, an air force, uh, an aircraft carrier task group maybe gets destroyed off the coast of Taiwan. Everyone's like, whoa, they think about it and they decide actually, while we, we don't want to use nukes, we also, just because a nuke detonated, we're not going to automatically escalate. We're not going to do this game theory thing of 60 minutes to end the world. And I think that's really a, a, an institutional reform and a policy thinking reform that has to happen with the great powers themselves, because only Russia, the United States, and in the near future, probably China, have thousands of nuclear weapons. Other countries, you know, even larger arsenals like that of, uh, 
you know, um, Britain or France, we're talking hundreds. And if we're talking Pakistan and India, we're talking dozens, maybe now slowly going into the hundreds. Is it fair to summarize, to crudely summarize your, your position as, hey, the only way we get the abundance that comes with, with nuclear is also to increase the risk of nuclear war, which is to say is to allow the exporting to countries that we may not want it, like uh, Iran and, and North Korea. Is, is that accurate or how would you edit that? I, I could state it. I could state it differently because I think this is something that um, you know provokes high, you know, strong feelings with good reason. And uh, you know, I'm hoping that with, with this podcast, we will never shy away from controversial topics. Um, you know, and, and hopefully the sponsors agree. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> um, no, I I think it's more the case that even if we don't get abundant energy. The national security argument for getting nuclear weapons is so overwhelming and whilst is so overwhelming that many countries will pursue acquiring nuclear weapons, even without acquiring like cheap nuclear power. Again, for North Korea, I guarantee you they have an easier time making six nuclear weapons that work than creating the conditions for energy abundance for North Koreans. Like, look, they still have a, a, a communist-ish ideology, like a communist nationalist ideology. They would be so thrilled. They'd be like, look at us. Like, we have achieved energy abundance while the capitalist pigs haven't. But they don't have the scale. They don't have the resources. They don't have the technical expertise. We're a bit unlucky that it's easier industrially to make a bomb than it is to make lots of cheap nuclear reactors, Okay. And countries will pursue acquiring nuclear weapons. Maybe if there is regime change in North Korea one day, this country will lose nuclear weapons, right? But I guarantee you that if they say merge with South Korea, South Korea is still going to have lots of plutonium. So it's still going to be one year away in perpetuity for developing nuclear weapons. And all of these countries will, even if very poor and unstable, will pursue nuclear weapons for safety. The U.S. actually contributes to this. It's inevitable in the big picture, but the U.S. accelerated this by, say, promising Gaddafi that if he stops his nuclear weapons program uh, and his weapons of mass destruction programs, he's not going to have the same fate as Saddam Hussein. That's true. He had a worse fate. Okay, Saddam Hussein had a trial. Saddam Hussein's supporters, which I am not, would say it's a show trial. And Gaddafi got, like, you know, kind of butchered in the streets on video. That, that video of Gaddafi, you know, this terrible evil tyrant still being, you know, killed in the streets. From what I hear, um, you know, there's an unconfirmed source that says like Vladimir Putin, like watched that video like over and over again for like a week. <laughs> so, you know, we might hope that, oh, that clearly like, you know, that, 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 that will uh, calm him down right? That'll cause him to be afraid. It did cause him to be afraid, but I, I think maybe, maybe that backfired in an important way. Maybe he was like, okay, no matter what, I have to understand that if I lose power, I die. Okay. And the same was thought in the North Korean leadership. That's why the Kim dynasty, uh, Kim Jong, you know, Kim Jong Il, Kim Jong Un, uh, they understand that there's no happy exit for them as the dictators. They didn't even set up the system. Kim Jong-un is just born into it. Imagine you wake up this morning and you're a liberal Democrat Kim Jong-un. You just decide that, you know what, I'm just going to die painfully. And you immediately disassemble your system. 
even if you're like, oh, I'm going to go defect somewhere to safety, who in the world is going to offer you safety? Like even Switzerland's not going to do that. Russia's not going to do that. Russia needs you there. America is not to be trusted, okay? They'll put you on trial and they will kill you, right? Or they'll hand you back to the South Korean government uh, or the new North Korean government and they're going to kill you. So there's no end game. There's no end game. And you were just born into this. Absolutely terrible. He has my empathy, but also, you know, he is still culpable for, you know, any sort of tyrannical actions he undertakes, but it's a really legitimately bad situation to be born into. Um, comfy perhaps, but like, I think, I think a, a barbed wire gilded cage would be a good way to describe it yeah. or a gilded throne. That's also your execution chair. Um, wow. This is getting, I'm like, yeah, I'm making it a bit lighter. Okay. Again, all of these petty tyrants around the world and all of these, you know, even democratic countries like Israel have an overwhelming local national security incentive to acquire nuclear weapons. Once a country acquires nuclear weapons, it is very unlikely it'll get rid of nuclear weapons. Of the countries that denuclearized, South Africa is the only true example, in my opinion, where there was a peaceful and orderly handover of power from the apartheid regime to the sort of post-apartheid regime. And in that transition, the apartheid regime itself decided, you know, we don't want our successors to have nuclear weapons. And South Africa disassembled its nuclear weapons. For uh, Ukraine, the handover was, you know, Ukraine was denuclearized with the fall of the Soviet Union, but the weapons were technologically controlled by Russia. So it's sort of like they could have kept radioactive pieces of metal, which might have been useful and could have been reprocessed into working nuclear weapons. But the safeties on the Soviet nuclear weapons in Ukraine were such that you couldn't just use them off the shelf. Um, so denuclearization is rare. Nuclearization is easy and becoming easier. Um, countries, once they nuclearize, do not denuclearize. I think it's a ratchet. I think we have a nuclear proliferation ratchet. And as it ratchets up, we are paying the security and humanitarian cost of nuclear weapons, step by step, year by year, perhaps inevitably, right? Maybe it's gonna take 200 years, maybe it's gonna take 50 years, but eventually I think most of the planet will have nuclear capability. We might just not have abundant energy. So I would say there is a nuclear weapons ratchet already. Let us accelerate the civilian technology that is more difficult on top of the nuclear ratchet. We can do other things to try to denuclearize but controlling the technology has failed. North Korea can do it. The only way to prevent the world from nuclearizing like North Korea has is to prevent the world from industrializing, which we're not willing to do. I don't think we're willing to keep Latin America and Africa and the middle and parts of the Middle East without oil in perpetual poverty forever. So it means eventually, you know, they get their guns, they get their trucks, they get their factories, they get their mines, they get their coal power plants. And yes, they will eventually get their nuclear weapons, just as North Korea has. You can be very poor, but as long as you're industrialized, you can do it. So you're saying, hey, it's inevitable to get nuclear weapons. We might as well accelerate it in a uh, in an in, in, a, in a way that also leads to more energy, or it might as well it might as well make sure get some energy, get some positives out of it. I think we should uh, build as many nuclear reactors as possible in all the countries that already have nuclear uh, weapons. And for the countries that do not have nuclear weapons, I think a fair deal is that they get to buy their neighbors electricity. 
And except for Latin America and Africa, every part of the world has plenty of countries that already have nuclear weapons. So I don't know. I, you know, Europeans might not like it, but if France were to see build a thousand nuclear reactors, this does nothing to increase the world ending risk of France, right? France is, it's not an existential. Okay. France is not an existential risk. There's no, there's no Napoleon. There's no thousands of nuclear weapons ready. And if they build a thousand nuclear reactors, that's not going to in any way automatically make them build a thousand nuclear weapons. It actually might reduce the risk. It might be, oh, we have such cheap energy. We're, we're selling energy to Germany, to Spain, to Britain across the channel. We just build like, you know, a high voltage line under the sea. Like this stuff would, uh, I think this stuff would actually work for most industrialized parts of the world. And for Japan, look, they already have five tons of plutonium. They're not, unless their security situation gets worse, increase that to a stockpile of like, I mean, five tons. I mean, picking a random example, they have more than that, but they're not going to increase their stockpile of plutonium by a hundredfold just because they increase their energy uh, consumption and production a hundredfold. They might do that anyway, even without cheap energy, if they judge the United States will not back them in case of a Chinese invasion. So they decide actually... Our long-term security bet is going to be having a nuclear arsenal that matches China's, right? Like that could happen, but that's like total security logic. It doesn't have anything to do with reactors. So I'm in favor of free export of nuclear technology between all countries that already have nuclear weapons. And perhaps, honestly, perhaps you could even be kind of nice and be like, hey, if you don't acquire nuclear weapons, the nuclear, uh, the nuclear club offers you cheap electricity prices and exports, and we're actually going to subsidize your energy usage. Here's a crazy and fun one. Um, maybe the U.S. should offer cheap fossil fuels to any country that uh, you know, chooses to not have nuclear technology. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that, that's a fun one. We should wrap on that because we're at the hour, but I'm glad we did a, a broad overview on, on this topic because it's a, it's a topic we'll continue to go deeper on in, uh, in episodes to come. Uh, you have some great posts on Bismarck Brief that I highly recommend people reading on on, on Russia and South Korea and Japan and fracking. We, we've, we've hinted at a few of them. We'll go deeper in, in future episodes. Samo, always a pleasure. Excited for next week. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for listening to Live Players. Please subscribe, leave a review, and check out Samo's excellent newsletter, The Bismarck Brief, for more rigorous analysis of key individuals, institutions, or industries. Live Players is a production of Turpentine, the podcast network behind Econ 102 with Noah Smith and Moment of Zen. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 